Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Please open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We're in Genesis chapter 11. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, I would encourage you to pick up one of the paperback Bibles underneath one of the chairs in front of you. It'll be very helpful to you to have a Bible open as we go through this text. We're going to be looking at chapter 11, verse 10, through chapter 12, verse 4. Um, As I'm sure all of you know, there have been uh, many objections to the Christian faith over the centuries. Uh, One of the most common objections that probably most of you are familiar with is this idea that we live in a scientific age and so science has shown us that miracles and the supernatural don't exist and therefore we can't really believe in a Bible or a Christian religion that tells us these things are true. And so we've got to live in the modern age, and so we, we, we can't accept the teachings of the Bible. That's a very common accusation against the Christian faith. Um, but we, we live in a different day, and certainly there are still people who make that accusation. But things have changed, and one of the common uh, charges, accusations against the Christian faith today is very simply this. It's that the Christian faith is not good. That, that the Christian faith is actually immoral. The Bible is immoral. Uh, what some are saying is that the problem with Christianity is that it's not good for the world. It's, it's bad for the world. That's what some are saying today, and it's a charge that we should be prepared to respond to. We should admit as believers that throughout history, very bad things have been done in the name of Jesus. That's true. Very bad things have been done in the name of religion and in the name of the church. But our text here today is going to tell us that it has always been God's intent for his people to be a blessing to the world. It's one of the main purposes why we exist. Not to be an enemy of the world, not to resent the world, but we are called to reach out to the world, to bless the world, to care for the world, to benefit the world. And so one of the challenges that I want to present to you today, and I would ask you to kind of keep this question in your mind as we go through this text today, uh, the the question is this. As you think of the, the blessings of the gospel that you have received, as you think of the forgiveness of sins that you have in Jesus, the the promise of eternal life and going to heaven upon your death and the filling of, your holy, of the Holy Spirit in you, as you think about the blessings of the gospel, do you consider those to be simply for your own personal enjoyment? Or do you realize that those things have been given to you not only for your enjoyment, but also so that you would turn them outward in blessing to others? If you are a Christian today, you have been called to Christ, not just for your own personal benefit, but for the blessing of the world. And that's the main theme of our text today. Um, This is going to be uh, one of the last sermons in Genesis we're going to do for a little while. Um, We are at a a good kind of transition point here, and um, I kind of sense the the need uh, to spend some time thinking about prayer, and so the session has given approval for me to engage in a short sermon series on prayer that will begin after the Easter holidays. 
Um, we'll return, God willing, to Genesis eventually, but we're going to take a little break. Um, again, this is uh, a good transition point as we get to the end of chapter 11 and move to chapter 12. Chapter 12 is the beginning of the story of the patriarchs, that is the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so um, this is a good time for a transitionary pause in our series here on Genesis. So. Um, if you're able to stand, please do so. <clears throat> I, I feel like I'm very loud. Is, is, that, is that right? Volume seems good to everybody? Sound, sounds loud to me? Okay, that's fine. Um, <clears throat> so here we are. Uh, we're going to pick up in chapter 11, verse 10. Last time we were in Genesis, we looked at the story of the Tower of Babel. And uh, here we are at uh, another a genealogy. <laughs> Okay, so I, I know these genealogies can probably seem uh, a little tedious, perhaps, uh, but again, let me remind you that all of God's word is given to us to equip us for every good work, and that includes the genealogies, uh, and that would include the genealogy we're going to read right now. So chapter 11, verse 10, and I'll read to chapter 12, verse 4. <clears throat> these are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Ru lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. <clears throat> now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Father, would you please send your spirit to fill this place, fill our hearts, fill our minds, and open wonderful things to us in your inspired word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So we're thinking of this theme of uh, being a blessing to the world as we go through or continue here our series uh, in Genesis. And so uh, the first thing I want us to consider is uh, the problem that God is seeking to address in the the book of Genesis. Because if we're going to answer this question of whether uh, Christianity is good for the world, one thing we have to agree upon is what is the problem with the world? Uh, We can't really make an assessment of whether anything is good for the world if we don't know what the problem is. And so what we see here is that there is a universal problem, a universal problem. Uh, If you asked a number of people what is the problem with the world, I'm sure they would give you many different reasons. Some people would say the problem with the world is wars and violence. Some people would say it's racism. Some would say it's bigotry. It might be... uh, Uh, climate change, poverty, there's a number of different reasons people would give to this question. What is the problem with the world? The Bible would acknowledge, sure, all of these things are are problems, but the Bible would say that none of those things is the biggest problem. None of those things is the foundational root problem that the entire world faces. What the Bible tells us is that the biggest problem, the root problem, the foundational problem is the problem of sin, the problem of sin. So by way of review, we've been going through here Genesis one chapter at a time. You'll remember that sin entered the picture back in chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And then uh, in the ensuing chapters, the problem of sin just got worse and worse and worse until you get to chapter 6 verse 5 where the text tells us that the wickedness of man is great and that his thoughts are evil continually all the time. So the Bible is telling us that the sin problem is getting worse, and so in response to that, what does God do? He sends the flood, right? So we see the flood comes as a judgment of God on humanity for their sin and destroys every living thing except for Noah and his family and the animals, and they come off the ark, but we have learned that even when Noah came off the ark, saved from the flood, that he carried with him that same sin problem in his heart. The flood did not eradicate that problem. And so chapter 8, verse 21, we have a repetition of chapter 6, verse 5. It says, man's heart is evil, even from his youth. So the flood didn't fix the problem. Noah comes off the ark, and then we see Noah um, with three sons, right? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And what we see then from the flood going forward to chapter 11 is another kind of deterioration. That is, sin continues to get worse again. It gets worse and worse and reaches its apex then in the beginning of chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. And that's what we looked at last time, two weeks ago, the Tower of Babel, where humanity united to make a name for themselves, to defy the name of God, to even try to take the place of God themselves. Chapter 11, Tower of Babel, we see this this 
blatant defiance of God's lordship. Now, you might remember that in chapter 11, I mentioned that chapter 11 actually comes before chapter 10 chronologically. It's different in the way our Bible is laid out, but the events of the story of Babel take place before chapter 10, and in chapter 10, the table of nations, we saw how Noah's sons gave birth to various descendants and the human race spread out over the entire globe, right? Do you remember that? That was Mission Sunday. But implicit in all of this is that that sin problem has remained in the hearts of men and women and children. And so when the human race was dispersed throughout the earth, sin went with the race. And we have a human race totally corrupted in their sin. Now remember, in chapter 9, also God said, I'm not going to send a flood anymore. As sin continues to get worse, I'm not going to deal with it in that way. I did it once, but with God's covenant with Noah, he says, I'm not going to do it again. I'm not going to send a flood. And so now here we are in chapter 11 into chapter 12, and we see that God is going to deal with the sin problem in a different way. And here's what he's going to do. He sees all the nations of the world, and they're all sinful, they're all corrupt, they all live in rebellion against God, and what God is going to do is he's going to create one nation out of all the nations for himself, a nation that's going to be different, a nation that he's going to call his holy people, a kingdom of priests, his treasured possession. There's going to be a nation on this earth that's not going to be like every other nation. It's going to be a nation who follows the creator of the universe, and that lives holy and righteous lives. And of course, that nation is the nation of Israel. And so that's what we're seeing here as we get to chapter 12. The beginning of the nation of Israel, which starts with the calling of one man, this man called Abram. Abram, which we read about here at the start of chapter 12, also known as Abraham. His name will be changed to Abraham. Abram, Abraham, same person. So, What we're seeing here in chapter 11 is the genealogy that's going to link the events of the Tower of Babel at the start of chapter 11 to the calling of Abraham or Abram in chapter 12. So that's the purpose of of all of these names. Uh, Again, yeah, genealogies, they can seem tedious, but but they're here for a, a reason. They're here to give instruction to us. In chapter 10, there was a genealogy there, and that genealogy showed again the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and how all of their descendants spread throughout the earth. Here in chapter 11, the writer, Moses, is taking just one of Noah's descendants, that is Shem, and showing his genealogy, and showing how Shem's descendants are eventually going to lead to Abram. So, I know, lots of names here. Maybe you're feeling confused. Um, Let let me show you this uh, little chart. Thank you, Andrew Brown, for preparing this uh, for me. This kind of gives you an overview of how this whole process has been working. So um, it starts (coughs) with Adam and Eve um, in the garden. Adam and Eve have children, Cain, Abel, and Seth. You remember the story of Cain and Abel in chapter 4? Cain kills Abel. But remember, God had made a promise to Adam and Eve, and that is a descendant is going to come from the woman, from Eve, who is going to crush the head of the serpent. And so all throughout Genesis, we're seeing these two redemptive, or these two um, 
uh, two lines developing, the line that flows from the serpent and the line that flows from the woman. And so here's how it's worked out. Although Cain killed Abel, another child is born, and his name is Seth. We saw that in chapter 5. Chapter 5 is the genealogy of Seth to Noah. So, of course, there's a lot of generations here in between. I'm not including on this chart, but just so you can see a broad overview. So from Seth comes Noah. The redemptive line is, is these, uh, these uh, yellow kind of names. From Seth comes Noah. From Noah comes these three men, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham and Japheth, they're not part of the redemptive line. God is not planning to bring up the Messiah from that line. It's through Shem. And so Shem then has three children himself, Elam, Ashur, and Arpachshad. We just read about Arpachshad. This is told to us in chapter 10, verse 22. And now we get to chapter 11, and what the author is doing is just showing us Shem's line. Not, not Ham and Japheth, which we talked about in chapter 10, but just Shem's line. His son is Arpachshad, eventually comes Terah, eventually comes Abram, eventually comes Israel, and eventually comes Jesus, the Messiah. But what we don't want to miss here is, is the context, the broad context here. The reason why God is doing this is because of a problem. And the problem is the sin problem, that's the issue. Let's not lose sight of that. You know, when we read the Bible sometimes, we see chapter three, we get to chapter 12, and we forget chapter three. We gotta always look at the Bible within the full context and the full sweep of the whole story. And what the Bible is telling us is that this sin problem is persisting. Now, we don't need to go through all these names. I don't plan to do that. Um, <clears throat> one thing I do want to point out is you might notice how the lifespans, the years, have decreased here throughout um, the genealogy. So Shem lives 600 years. You see that in verses 10 uh, and 11. Uh, 600 years, so he lived 100 years first, and then he uh, gave birth, and then 500 years later, so do the math, 600 years. Uh, but by the time we get to Nahor, at the end of the chapter, verses 24 to 25, we see that he lived about 148 years. So from 600 to 148 years, we're seeing these lifespans decrease. We talked about this uh, a, while, a while ago. Why are these lifespans so long? Lots of different theories about that. Very, 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 very early in human history, very soon after the fall. Apparently, people lived a long time because of the conditions of the world, but as sin began to take its root, lifespans decrease, and we have something closer to what we know today with Nahor living about 148 years. But again, it's this universal problem, the sin problem, that is the point here. This is the issue that every nation, that every person throughout the entire earth and throughout all of history has always had to contend with and deal with. It's the sin problem. People have had to fight other problems like poverty and racism and violence and war and injustice, and those are all problems, but they all are just fruit on the tree of the sinfulness that exists in the human heart of every single human being. What that tells us is that the, the villager in Kenya and the fishermen up in Iceland, and the Communist Party member in China, and your neighbor down the street in Yorktown and Muncie all have basically the same problem, and that is that they're sinners who naturally live 
and rebellion and defiance against God. And so whenever we evaluate a religion, an ideology, a worldview, and we try to figure out whether it's good for the world, here's the question that you need to ask. Does it provide a solution to the problem of sin? And if it doesn't, it's not good for the world. No matter what else it does, no matter what else it brings to us, no matter what other answers and brilliant ingenuity it might provide to us, if it doesn't deal with the sin problem, it is not a religion or a worldview that can really do us any good. And the Christian religion, the gospel, comes forth and says, we've got an answer for this problem, the sin problem, and the giving of Jesus as our Savior. So that's the first thing we see. That's kind of a broad overview of that genealogy. The sin problem persists, and it is a universal problem. But the second thing we see is that there is a particular solution to the sin problem. Universal problem, but a very particular solution. And again, it's that God is going to call one man, Abram. From that one man will come one nation, Israel, and from that one nation is going to come one Savior. And that is what God has offered as a solution to the sin problem. One Savior. There's one mediator between man and God. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus. There's just one. It's particular. It's specific. And so we get to another accusation that sometimes is brought against the Christian faith, which is that it's so narrow. You know, you're so exclusive. You're telling us there's only one way? Is that what you're really saying? And the truth is, yes, that is what we're saying. That is what the Bible is saying. That's what the whole flow of human history is about, is the provision of the one Savior. But friends, let's not miss um, the broad view here, which is that it is always one Savior for a global purpose. It's a particular solution with a universal goal. The provision of a Savior in the Scriptures is always with the whole world in mind. So we have to keep that in mind. It's like, is Christianity an exclusive religion? I mean, it's like, yeah, we have to say it that in one sense, and that is that we only have one Savior, but it's an exclusive religion with an inclusive goal. It's an inclusive exclusivity, if we can say it that way. So there's a particular solution that God is providing. So let's see, how, how, does, this, how does this work? How does it play out? The first thing we see is that God calls to Abram. God issues a call to Abram. That's what we see at the beginning of chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram. And at the end of chapter 11, we get some background about Abram. We find out who his father is. His name is Terah, verse 27. Uh, we find that uh, Abram has grown up, or his hometown is this place called Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, interestingly, this city of Ur was actually excavated in the late 1920s, early 1930s. A guy named uh, Leonard Woolley, a British guy, led a 13-year project where the city of Ur was actually found, buried, excavated, brought up. It was an international news event and demonstrates to us, you know, once again, that what the Bible says is true. We don't have archaeological evidence of every detail in the Bible, but we do have proof that Ur was a real place on the earth, and Abram lived there. 
And we also find here in verse 28, he married, Abram married this woman named Sarai. He has a nephew, verse 31, named Lot. We'll learn more about Lot later in Genesis. But out of all of sinful humanity, God is coming and he is choosing this man, Abram. So again, chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. God calls Abram. He determines that Abram's going to be my man. I'm going to build this nation that's going to be a solution to the problem of sin, and I'm going to start with this man, Abram. I'm going to call him to myself, and I'm going to use him. Now, this, the way this happens is very instructive for the way God goes about choosing who he's going to save and who he's going to use. Because here is a, a, a very kind of a common idea about the way God chooses is that he chooses people based on whether he thinks that they're going to be useful to him or he chooses people based on how good or morally upright that, that he believes them to be. That there's something in people that draws God to choose them. But that's not really what we see here, is it? Why is God choosing Abram of all people? Why him? Why not somebody else? I mean, think of what we're learning here about Abram. He, he was uh, a resident of this city of Ur. Do you know, Ur was a completely and totally committed pagan city. The people of Ur were moon worshipers. <laughs> That's what Abram was doing at the time that he was called by God, worshiping the moon and the stars and the galaxies. He is not presented to us here as a man who is on the search for the true God. He's a pagan, and we even learn this in Joshua 24, where it said, Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. They were completely committed to their ungodly way of life, and yet God comes and calls Abram. So there's nothing morally, nothing morally or religiously speaking in Abram that would cause God to want to choose him. And there's also nothing in Abram practically that would cause God to want to choose him. Because remember what's going on with this redemptive line thing. If the redemptive line is going to be fulfilled, it's going to happen because the people that God chooses have descendants, and that's why you see that repeated phrase throughout chapter 11. They had other sons and daughters, sons and daughters, sons and daughters. And then you get to verse 30 in chapter 11, and look what it says. Sarai was barren. She had no child. And yet God is choosing Abram, who is 75 years old, chapter 12, verse 4 says. What use is Abram going to be to God to fulfill the redemptive line when his wife can't have children and Abram is 75 years old? Why would God do this? Why would God choose Abram? One of the reasons, I think, is so that we can see as we're reading this text that if humanity is going to be saved, if the sin problem is going to be dealt with, if our issues are going to be fixed, it's got to be a miraculous work of God. It's got to be something that he does. It's not something that we do. It's not something that humanity can fix on their own. We are helpless apart from what God is going to do, and what this text does is sets us up waiting for anticipating what is God going to do. It's going to take a miracle 
And of course, we see these miracles throughout the Old Testament culminating in the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's another common view as we kind of think of this point. The common view is that humanity is out looking for God, searching for God, trying to find God, and what we find here is it's actually quite the opposite. It's God who is looking for people. It's God who's pursuing you and me. It's God who's on the run, finding people, choosing people, equipping people for his service. And the same, friends, is true today. God's doing the same thing today, calling people just like he called Abram. He's calling people to himself today. Not in exactly the same way. I don't think God speaks audibly out loud to people on a regular basis anyway, like he did with Abram. Hebrews 1 tells us that in the past God spoke in different ways. Now he's done it differently through his son. But nonetheless, God speaks. He calls. He calls through his scriptures, through the word. He calls through preachers like the one speaking to you right now. He calls through evangelists for people who come and tell you the gospel, call you to faith. God could be calling you right now. Do you hear his voice? This is his word. He calls people. This is where it begins. You hear the voice of God calling. That's the beginning of conversion. That's how you become a Christian. You hear God's voice through the scriptures as the gospel is proclaimed. Is God calling you? Has God called you? Have you responded to God's call in your life? Because that's the second thing that we see. Abram's response to God. Simply hearing the call is not enough. You must respond. You must respond. So how did Abram respond? Verse 4. He hears the call. Of God, and it says, So Abram went as the Lord told him. You know, it's another objection when you think about this idea of God choosing. Well, if God is sovereign and He's already worked it out, why do I have to do anything? Well, that's just not what the Bible presents to us. God is sovereign, He's chosen Abram, but Abram had to respond as a responsible moral agent. Abram couldn't have just said, Oh, God, you're in control, so I'm just going to sit back and watch you do the work. No, he went as the Lord commanded him. And he went in a way, friends, that was not easy. It's remarkable to consider what is entailed in Abram's going because he doesn't know where he's going. Verse 1, God says, go from your country and your kindred to a land that I will show you. I'm not telling you right now, Abram. (laughs) I just want you to get up and go. I'll, I'll let you know later, but not right now. He doesn't even know where he's going, and he follows God. And to the place that he's going, he has to leave behind his father's house, his country, his kindred, everything he's familiar with, everything he's comfortable with, everything that made him happy, everything that gave him joy and familiarity. He leaves it all behind to follow where God leads. The same is true today, friends. God calls But when he calls, there is no guarantee that it's going to be easy. When he calls you to himself, when he calls you to follow him, there's no guarantee that you're not going to have trouble. There's no even real clear revelation exactly where it is God is going to lead you. (laughs) You you don't know that. The call is to walk in faith. This is what the Christian life is all about. 
We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. We put our hope in what God has told us, and we walk in faith, following wherever he leads. The promise is that he's going to go with you. The promise is that those who lose their lives for God's sake will find it. The promise is given to us here in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. What Jesus is saying here is that the blessing that you will receive in following Jesus will exceed anything you might lose. That's what Abram found. That's what you will find. That's what I have found personally in my own life. I remember sensing the call to go to seminary 20 or so years ago, and my wife and I had our comfortable jobs in downtown Indianapolis, and to sense that that God was calling us away. Didn't hear a voice from God. No, I didn't. Um, But I confirmed with people who knew me in my local church, became convinced that it was time to go, and so we picked up, and we didn't go to Ur of the Chaldeans, but we went to St. Louis, Missouri, where Covenant Seminary was. We traveled there. We left behind what was familiar to us, and I will tell you that it was not easy. Uh, I would say those times during seminary were the, the hardest years for us as a married couple, presented many difficulties to us. But we, during this whole excursion, have found God totally faithful the whole way. Um, we would say that God has exceeded our expectations in our experience of going to seminary and looking into pastoral ministry. You can talk to Mary and ask her if she would say the same thing. I've not talked to her about this. It would be interesting what she would say if you talked to her, but I think she would say the same thing, that the Lord has exceeded our expectations. We have no regrets, even though I remember thinking I, I, might, I might lose everything by going to seminary, leaving behind my job and going to this place and uh, the Lord has been faithful. So, the Lord calls, and he might be calling you now. He doesn't guarantee it's going to be easy. He doesn't even tell you exactly where he's going to lead, but he will be faithful to you, and you will not regret where he leads. Well, these two things now lead to a last point here. We've got the universal problem, we've got a particular solution, and then the particular solution then leads to a universal blessing. A universal blessing. So going back to chapter 12 here, notice what God says to Abram when he calls him to himself. He doesn't call Abram to himself to be a blessing just to the nation of Israel, does he? Look what he says in verse 2 and 3. Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'll bless you. I'm going to make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I've called you, I've chosen you for a purpose, not just that you'll be mine and know what it is to have relationship with the living God, but so that you will be a blessing, so that you will care for, serve, love others, so that the blessing that I give you will be turned outward to bless others. Verse three, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you see the universal scope here? It's a particular means choosing Abram, but the goal is blessing to the entire world. 
to be chosen by God, to know that Jesus has died for you, to enjoy the blessings of the gospel, friends, is not an excuse for you to be complacent, to sit back and relax in your privileged status as a child of God. Enjoy the gospel, yes. Rest in the gospel, yes. Rejoice in what God has done for you in Jesus. But it doesn't end there, friends. You've been chosen so that you'll be a blessing to others, to the world. Michael Goheen says this, God's chosen people do not exist for themselves. Rather, they exist for the sake of others toward whom God's mission is directed. The community called by God, that's the church, exists as the place where God begins his work of restoration as the spirit of God is at work in all of us who believe the gospel and love the gospel begins here, but then it's a channel whereby that salvation might flow to all peoples all to the praise of his glory. So how is this being fulfilled today in in chapter 12, this promise to to Abram and and to Israel? Actually, Israel didn't turn out to be quite the blessing to the world that that, that was originally intended Uh, in their rebellion and unbelief. Israel did not fulfill all that God had required here, but eventually the Messiah came. Eventually, the son of Abraham came. Eventually, that redemptive line that I showed you, descendants were born throughout the ages until finally, 2,000 years ago, a child was born. His name was Jesus. And Jesus, in Jesus now, the promises to Abraham are fulfilled. So Galatians 3 tells us this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The Gentiles. Do you know who that is? That's you. (laughs) And that's me. The promise to Abraham fulfilled in the coming of Jesus for all who would repent, trust, and believe in his name. If you are a Christian today, friends, you are a child of Abraham. Do you know that? You are a recipient of the blessings that God gave, the promise that God gave to Abram all these years ago in Genesis chapter 12. 12. Excuse me. But remember, friends, the purpose, the long-term purpose here is that you now would serve, bless, love, reach out, and care for others, that all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now, you might say, I can't reach all the families of the earth. (laughs) Uh, We as a church can't reach all the families of the earth. So, how do we do this? And let me just conclude by offering some some practical suggestions. It's true, our, our work cannot reach all the families of the earth, but friends, our reach should extend beyond the four walls of this church. Our reach needs to extend beyond, more so than just this local community of saints. Our eyes need to be looking outward to how we can bless those around us. What can you do? doesn't mean you have to pack your bags and move to Africa. It doesn't mean that. You can, though, have somebody over for dinner in your neighborhood. You're taking a walk. You meet somebody. You find out their spouse just died. They're hurting. They're in pain. How about having them over? Somebody you've gotten in some spiritual conversations with, have them over. 
You don't have to convert them over dinner. Just have them over. Invite them into your home. Let them see the way you live as a redeemed saint, as a follower of Jesus Christ. How about invite someone into your life group? Sometimes people are more likely to join a life group than they would be to come on Sunday morning to church. Some people are intimidated by coming to church. Bring them to your life group. Just let them come and hang out. They don't have to pray. They don't have to do anything. Just let them enjoy the fellowship of being with other people. Some people are not with anybody ever all week long. But you can also invite people to church, you know. Bring somebody along with you on Sunday mornings. There are some people here in the church who've been doing that a lot lately. It's been wonderful to see. Just invite somebody to come with you. You want to come on Sunday morning? You don't even have to wake up early. You can come at 11 o'clock. We have a ministry here at New Life to Elmcroft, as Pastor Brian prayed earlier, part of our compassion ministry. We heard from Elmcroft just this past week. We haven't been able to conduct our ministry there because of COVID over the last year or so, but they've called us and they said, we're ready for you to come back. We want your people to come back and minister to the residents of this Elmcroft facility, uh, elderly patients there in uh, Elmcroft up there on Morrison Road. We don't have anybody overseeing that ministry right now. Harriet Kruger did it for a long time, did a great job. She stepped aside. We, we need someone to help with the Elmcroft ministry. It's a good way to reach out, to care for others. Uh, you know, you don't have to go to the far reaches of the world to reach people of other nations because many in other nations are coming right here. And so you can have an influence on people from other nations in this place. In fact, there's an organization called FLAG um, that arranges for international students to live with families here locally. And Christine Schultz is a, a, a coordinator with FLAG and she attends this church. She'll have a table out in the foyer if you wanna talk with her after the service. But here's a great way to have someone from another nation into your home, let them live with you and see how you live as a Christian. Many opportunities, friends, to, to, to reach out. <laughs> Fact is, Christianity has been good for the world. That's the answer. Christianity has been good for the world. You know, it's Christians who started the first hospitals. It's Christians who started the first orphanages. It's the whole notion of human rights that is built on Christian doctrine. It's Christians who fought against slavery in Britain and in early America. Christianity is good for the world, but the, the biggest reason and the best reason that Christianity is good for the world is because it offers a Savior. A Savior named Jesus who offers peace and forgiveness, a hope yet to come. So let all the nations trust in him. Lord, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that you speak to us on the pages of scripture. Uh, we know, Lord, that you have called us to a purpose of reaching out, so make us a church, Father, with a heart for the lost. Make us a church eager to serve others, even as we enjoy and rejoice in the good blessings we have in Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lived and died and has risen for us. In his name we pray, amen.